0: Jesus, our Lord, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is born. O come, let us adore him. Let us pray. O mighty and majestic God, who did send the Christ to be born to us in a manger, whom the angels and all the blessed in heaven praise, grant us, people, in our poverty here, our humility, the grace to worship you in righteousness on earth and to serve you according to your good pleasure. May we stand in your presence with true reverence and a heavenly mind, and in faith adore your glory. Lift up our thoughts and desires to yourself, sanctify our worship, bless our service, and may the praise of our lips be pleasing to you. Hearken to our prayers, which we break before you, and we pray for your mercy, and that you would bestow upon us in your grace all things necessary for our blessedness through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In whose name we pray, amen. Our first hymn is number 203, Hark the Herald angel Sing. God shows his love for us and that in the fullness of time, Christ was born for us to lift up the lowly, to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of their sins. Let us then show our love for him by confessing our sins in penitence and faith. Let us pray together. Almighty God, our sovereign Lord, you yourself have made us, you have supplied our daily needs and most of all have come to us in grace and mercy while we lived in sin and fear and darkness. We have been a people of no faith, neglecting obedience to your commands, knowing what is right and yet doing what is wrong, not believing that you are our God and we your creatures, and not believing that Christ could become one of us and still be God. Forgive us our sin and unbelief, As Christ came into this world asleep in its sin, and as the light of your salvation awakened it, come and awaken faith in us, so that we might do everything through faith in Jesus Christ, and thus receive all things with thanksgiving, and walk in newness of life, through the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. The Holy Child is born, and his name is Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ that all those who have faith in him are truly forgiven of all their sin, and those who uh, have faith and repent can be assured that they belong to God through Jesus Christ and are indeed his children. This is the good news of the gospel, and let us say together, praise, praise be to Amen. God. As forgiven and redeemed sinners, we are called to walk humbly with our God in lives of gratitude. I was reading something recently that was making the point that in the Reformed tradition, um, theology was always connected to practical theology. Practical theology in terms of the importance of living our lives in accord with God's word, the, the morality, the righteousness, all of that, of that life. And the Reformed tradition is has always had a very important understanding of the law, not just to show us our sin and not just to help give a framework of justice in society, but also to show us how to live in response to God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. It's The life we live should never be a legalistic life where we're trying to to make God happy or, or trying to be righteous before God or anything like that. It's, uh, it's all about gratitude. It's all about living a life of thanksgiving according to God's ways Um, for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And so here again, this um, sort of paraphrase of the Ten Commandments. God commands us to serve him alone as God, to serve him according to his word, to speak of him only with deep respect and love, to attend faithfully the assembly of God's people on the day of rest, and every day to let the Lord work in us through his spirit. He commands us to respect and cooperate with all God-given authority, to nurture and protect human life as God's precious gift, to live purely and joyfully with the gift of, gift of sex, to respect the property of others, to use the gift of speech for promoting the truth and love, and to be content with what we have. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ as we are taught in Scripture, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 216, Infant Holy, Infant Lowly. Infant holy, infant lowly, for his bed a cattle stall. Oxen lowing, little knowing, Christ the babe is Lord of all. Swift are winging, angels singing, Noels ringing, tidings ringing. Christ the babe is Lord of all. Christ the babe is Lord of all. Flocks were sleeping, shepherds keeping, Vigil till the morning new Saw the glory, heard the story Tidings of a gospel true Thus rejoicing, free from sorrow Praises voicing, greet the morrow Christ the babe was born for you Christ the babe was born for you let us pray for this world and the church let us pray almighty god our heavenly father who has given us your one and only son to take our nature upon himself being born of the virgin at the fullness of the time of your salvation Because your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, accepted his commission to be our Savior and bring us back to you, we pray now, as your children, adopted into loving communion with you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. We hear your word that calls us your beloved children, and now we answer back with our thanksgiving and our pleas and concerns for your church and the general welfare of all people. Lord of heaven and earth, keep back the roaring waters of chaos that surround us. This is such a vibrant image in scripture and seems to be so true today. Do not let the violent ways of men overflow this world and flood the earth. Chaos and violence that strikes hard, indifference to human life and political debates, abortion, shootings, threats of new war and destruction of civilization. By your power, keep us and your whole creation in place We do pray for peace in the war-torn areas of this world, like Ukraine, prevent these conflicts from destroying those nations and spilling over into greater and greater areas. We pray that the governments of this world would execute justice tempered with respect for the dignity of all people, and power would be tempered with restraint. Here are our prayers for Joe Biden, the government of China, Andres Obrador in Mexico, and others who rule, and all the nations that come to mind. hear our prayers. Great is your mercy and compassion to us, O Lord. As the scripture says, you exalt those of low degree and fill the hungry with good things. Give us grace to help the poor and the needy. Give us an unselfish concern for them. Embolden us to be protectors of the weak. May we be stirred up by your Spirit to notice those in need and come to their aid. And as you have come to our rescue, just as you have come to our rescue through Jesus Christ, hear our prayers for those who have lost loved ones this year, for those who are suffering from lack of shelter and food and other material needs, especially in this cold weather. Hear our prayers. Our most blessed Savior, we pray for your beloved people in Christ. We pray for your church, and we ask that you would grow humility in us all. In our busy and sometimes hectic activity, do not let us forget that you have given your church the task of being witnesses to Jesus Christ in word and deed, whether the world is receptive or not. And we pray that in our use of time, our relationships with our families, our friendships with neighbors, we would proclaim Jesus Christ. Here are our prayers for those we know with strained relationships. May our theology and conversations with other churches be for the improvement of gospel proclamation, both here and where we have missions in the world. We pray for the proclamation of Christ in Brighton in the city of Brighton at Covenant OPC with Doug Dahl, their pastor, and in China with our missionary, Mike McCabe. Hear our prayers. And now, O Lord, we pray for this congregation who gather in this place. We ask that we would continually be kept firm in the faith of Jesus Christ from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. Hear our concerns. Strengthen and heal those who are fatigued, who have various ailments and diseases that weaken their bodies and minds, and those who grieve. We pray for Leah and Eduardo, for Jeff and Linda, for Bob and Fawn, for Frida, for our friends, Becky, Angie, Karen, Mrs. Mesner, Tom, Phil, Dominic, Bob, Gladys, and others we name to you in silence. For those who feel the stress of life, who are sleeping poorly, or are burned out and tired, whose bodies are out of balance, we ask to give them rest and and healing. Heal them and restore them to good health, and may medical care give wellness to them. We give you thanks for the gifts that we have received, and especially the gift of Jesus Christ, who has come as our Lord and Savior. All these prayers we do make in his name— Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
1: stand and pray together with me the prayer for the offering. As we come now to the reading and the preaching of God's word, let us prepare our hearts and minds to receive this God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may it please you to quiet our minds and still our hearts and open them to receive your word that it may find fertile ground and in that fertile ground produce fruit that we would grow in uh, our sanctification, grow in our knowledge of Christ, grow in service to you, and know Christ more fully and more completely. For we do pray this in his name. Amen. Our first reading comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 1 to 5. Listen now to God's word. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 10, printed in the bulletin. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble?
2: wicked pursue the poor, let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised.
1: For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord.
0: In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God.
1: His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them.
2: He says in his heart, I shall
0: not be moved. For all generations, I shall not meet adversity.
1: His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face, he will never see it. Arise, o Lord. Our epistle reading comes from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Again, God's word. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then finally, our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him. Was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: John's Gospel, we heard it in our Gospel lesson this morning, it famously proclaims that the Word became flesh, which is absolutely fitting, right, for this day, for the day of celebrating Christ's birth. So let's quickly break that down. What Word? Well, the Word, and in fact, it would be appropriate to capitalize that Word, the Word who was with God and was God, he was in the beginning with God, that's what John tells us right at the start of his gospel, the eternal, transcendent, holy, almighty word with a capital W, the Son who is with the Father. That word, the word through whom all things were made. What flesh? Well, our creaturely existence. It's a mistake to think of flesh in sort of the the more recent uh, sense of that word where it's just the outward skin and muscle and tissue of our bodies. It's a whole lot more than that in Scripture. So what flesh? Well, our creaturely existence. We are flesh because we are weak, fragile, vulnerable, dependent creatures. And after sin, our flesh, our existence, is painful, mortal, broken, and wrecked. And then became, the word became flesh, became. Yes, became, God became man. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Now, there's a very old objection to this. There have been lots of objections, but this is an old one. It goes like this. It's not fitting that he who surpassed the greatest things should be contained in the least, and that he who has charge of great things should leave them for lesser things. But God, who takes care of the whole world, cannot be contained by the whole universe. Therefore, it would seem unfitting that within the small body of a squalling infant should lie hidden he in comparison with whom the whole universe is accounted as little, and that this ruler should leave his throne for so long and transfer the government of the whole world to so frail a body. That was um, Volusianus who wrote that to Augustine, so back in the 5th, probably the 5th or late 4th century, he wrote that objection to Augustine. It doesn't make sense, he said. Essentially, Volusianus was saying there's a big problem with the incarnation. It implies a change within God from being the infinite, eternal God, ruler of all things, creator of all things, into becoming a finite, temporal man. God can't change who he is. That's what Volusianus is saying. There's also a new objection. So that's an old objection. It's been around for a long time. There's a newer objection that pokes at the incarnation from the other side. And this new objection objects to an unmoved observer God. It objects to an apathetic stone-faced God, which is sometimes how people have thought of God, especially in the modern era. This objection came to the fore because of the colossal suffering uh, and abuse during the 20th century. The suffering was mostly of a political nature. By that, I mean it took place in the political social realm. The suffering of those who were socially, racially, politically, and economically abused. And there was immense global suffering, and the obvious hot spots in the 20th century were World War I, World War II, and the Soviet gulags, not to mention what was going on in Asia. For many, the break point, the point that really just kind of pushed it over was Auschwitz the Nazi death camp where 1.1 million Jews died. And it's not that there weren't other heinous examples of suffering in the world before this, but for many, the death camps were the condensed places where so much evil and suffering was concentrated. One-sixth, this is staggering when you think about it, one-sixth of the Jews killed in Nazi Germany were killed at Auschwitz in one uh, camp there. Eli uh, Wiesel, I think is how you say his name, but he's written da- uh, Dark Dawn Day. Um, he was, he's a Jewish man who was a prisoner at Auschwitz. He tells horrific stories of young and old who were hanged there. There were lots of ways that the Jews were killed. The people were killed there, and hanging was one of them. And during one of these hangings, all the prisoners had to come out. They were all marched out and set, stood in rows and watched it. They had to watch it. And one of the prisoners, Eli uh, Wiesel, remembers hearing uh, one of the prisoners say behind him, where is God, where is he? The modern objection is to an unchanging, impassionate God who is stoically beyond us. So you've got kind of these two complaints about the incarnation. This is not the only complaint of those who have suffered from political abuses. There's also the complaint of those, including Christians, including probably us at times, who have experienced other kinds of suffering in this world. So it's not just on a large, big scale. It's also on a personal scale. And there's a writer I've referred to him before, Kelly Capick teaches down at Covenant Seminary in, um, where is that, Tennessee or Georgia. He tells the story of an older man who wrote a personal lament to God. And he titled it A Spontaneous Lament. And it has these questions in it, and they're addressed to God. Why did my daughter's husband break her heart, presumably a divorce? Why does my wife have to live in pain? Why do parents have to bury their children and it isn't right? Why are your people abused, persecuted, and killed? Can't you protect them? Why do my parents need to finish their lives in unrelenting misery? How is that merciful? Can't you make it stop? Well, Scripture doesn't gloss over these things. It doesn't gloss over that kind of question that arises out of our life in this broken world. Does God care? And the Psalms, like our responsive reading of Psalm 10, have these questions in them. You can even look in your bulletin and see that the, the first line of that Psalm. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? <clears throat> Yet scripture does not just raise a lament. It doesn't just issue a complaint. It tells us about who God is and what he's done for us. It tells us the word became flesh. One of the things scripture tells us is that God does not change. Good Christian theology doesn't boil down to verses of scripture. I know we we like to do that. We like to argue our theology with Fellow Christians, or maybe someone who's not a Christian, and we we revert, we go to a verse. Well, this verse says, "Well, that's not really how Christian theology is done." It's not that the verses don't matter. Of course, they do, but it doesn't really come down to a verse. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't verses of Scripture that make the point. And in the case of God not changing, there are scriptures that say that. There are lines of Scripture that say He does not change. My, uh, Malachi three, verse six says, "For I, the Lord, do not change." Okay. Now, you'd have to. Study that and learn it in context, and it usually um, is not exactly saying what what we're trying to make it say in in a bigger picture of things, but it certainly relates to that. And Psalm 102 declares of God, of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. God doesn't change the book of Numbers rebuts any notion that God is like us, we who do change, when Balaam says, God is not man, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. So God condescends to us, scripture teaches, God condescends to us, uses creaturely analogies to reveal himself to us, but we always need to remember their analogies and be careful of trying to, to turn God into one of, into us, one of, one of his creatures like having human emotions, body parts, and figures. Scripture uses those as analogies for God, but really Scripture teaches us that he's not like us. We wouldn't understand what he's like unless he did use these analogies. The epistle of James calls God the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Christian theology does more than look for verses of Scripture to work out its doctrines. It listens to the whole story of God's salvation that runs from Genesis to Revelation. That takes a lot of work, so we come to hear God's word preached and taught, we study it, and we really want to more and more pick up that bigger picture and not just get caught in the trees but also see the forest as a whole. And when we do that, we learn that God is consistently true to himself, God is constant in his love, forgiveness, righteousness, and justice. The orthodox way of saying this is that God is who he is in his being, and I'll teach you a fancy theological word, aseity. God is who he is in his being, and that is the word in, in theology that they use, aseity, aseity of being. But it means that who he is does not change. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And it doesn't end there, but God's activity in time and history its not just in his being, but God's activity that issues forth from his being in time and history is consistent with who he is in his being, such as the incarnation. So what God does in the incarnation and the word became flesh is, is consistent with who he is in his being. Now, if you think about this, a question emerges concerning the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If God does not change in who He is, then what does it mean for God to become man? Doesn't that seem like it would be a change? When you're this, and you become that, or for the Word to become flesh? Isn't that a change with God? Now, at one point, at one point He did not take up our humanity, and at another point He did. So it seems to imply a change. Doesn't that? The incarnation, mean God, changes. Well, this would not be such a problem if Jesus Christ were just an ordinary man. If that's what the church said, then we'd all go, well, okay, yeah, he wasn't this, and now he is. I wasn't a father, now I am. You know, I wasn't a husband, now I am. So that's not strange for us as just ordinary human beings. But that's not what scripture says. It says Jesus Christ is the eternal word who became flesh. He's the son of God eternally in relationship to the father. He's God. He's the only begotten son of God. He's, um, so he's that eternal God. He's, uh, historic Orthodox Christian teaching says God does not change in his being or in his acts in history even when Christ becomes man. So that becomes a puzzler. What does, what does that mean? Well, here's one way to explain this. God is perfect and complete in himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect relation of love, goodness, holiness, and purpose. It was God's eternal purpose to create an other, something outside himself, which was his entire creation and us. He acted to create the world, and in doing so, he acted to share his goodness with us. It wasn't just uh, trying to make something and then just see what happens but he's sh- god is sharing his goodness with it. his act of creation is an act of goodness of sharing his goodness god is that god who in the act of creation shares the goodness of his existence with that other with us with his creation in sharing the goodness of his existence with us he himself does not change and so i heard a helpful illustration of this and it's not perfect there is not going to be a perfect illustration but i think it's helpful Let's say I am fluent in French, which I'm not. I barely know some Spanish. Let's say I'm fluent in French. If I teach you to speak French, it's not I who have changed, but you. I remain unchanged in regard to French. I could speak French before, and I could speak it after I teach you. Even though you can now say something about me that you could not say before you taught me French, it's not me that changed. It's the person being taught. So like I said, it's not a perfect illustration because when two people um, of the same kind interact, when two of us interact, there's a reciprocity that does occur for both. So there would be a playback for me as I'm teaching you French and you're learning it and I begin to see your struggles and that that impresses me. And So there could be a back and forth with learning French of two equals. But God is not the same as us. He's not equal with us. Therefore, he can do something for us without it changing himself. So it's an imperfect illustration, but it kind of gets us thinking. And this is how it is with the incarnation. When God became man, he shared his goodness with us, but the change was with us, not with God. So we are the ones who change. As creatures, change is part of who we are. The creation story in Genesis, which, by the way, the beginning, that's called the prologue of John, is definitely playing off of that those beginning, um, that beginning uh, section of Genesis. The word became flesh is playing off of what Genesis says about God uh, creating the world. As creatures, change is part of us, part of who we are. The creation story in Genesis tells us there was a time when the world was nothing, was not, and mankind did not exist. There was nothing. Then God extended his goodness and created us, and he formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him. Inherent in us is change. So we have a beginning. All of us do. We have a beginning, a conception. We have a beginning, and we grow and we develop. Change is inherent in who we are as creatures of God. And God created man to gain the tree of life through obedience. That's in that story in Genesis. There was a movement toward eternal blessedness. You might say man was created to mature in his relationship with God. Adam and Eve sinned, as you know, and changed from being godly and righteous to being unholy and rebellious. And this was the monumental change that cast humanity and the whole world into enmity with God. So we are changelings. Sin does not only change us spiritually, but also physically. And as we grow older, our strength fades. We are susceptible to illness. We, we begin to break down to become frail. Our bodies and minds do not stay the same. Contrary to what our culture thinks, we cannot stay young forever. And our life begins at conception, but at some point it comes to an end. And there are testimonials to our mutability, our change all around us, cemeteries. You go by a cemetery, do you ever stop and think for a minute? There are people there who once were alive, walked on this earth, and now they're dead and buried. Hospitals are basically organizations, institutions dealing with change that happens to people's bodies and minds. Schools are are probably the more hopeful (laughs) um, institution of change, where they're trying to, to help people know more, help the kids know more and grow in their thinking. Clocks are signs of change. Mirrors show that change. I don't look in mirrors anymore. We feel it in our soul when we go back to visit our homes. You know, I, Every once in a while, like once every 10 years, I, I'm back in Colorado. I drive up to Greeley to see where, where I lived. I was talking to someone um, who's, who went through Greeley, and he said, everyone who's been to Greeley says the same thing, especially if you were there 20 years ago. It stinks, and it does, literally. One of the world's largest feedlots was north of town when I grew up. So a quarter of a million or thereabouts head of cattle all waiting to be be fattened. They're fattening them up for three months before they go to slaughter. It's all north of town. That's a brilliant place to put a feedlot. (laughs) So the wind, the north wind blew that, and we just grew up with that smell of ammonia in town. So if you've ever been there, especially back then, you would say, yeah, it smells. And... um, why am I telling you that? Oh, so um, when I go back to Greeley, uh, I always swing by and see the old house and I see the neighborhood, and there's always a little bit of a twinge of sadness in me because I see how it's changed. It didn't change for the best, better. It uh, really was downgraded for a while. The neighborhood kind of went downhill. I think it's coming back, but anyway, to see those things and the memories and to realize I'm older and those things are gone, and you know we don't live there anymore. So we have a strong sense of that mutability in us. Things are not the same. And isn't that what Scripture tells us? Like the book of Ecclesiastes, it it tells us about ourselves. Here are some of the things it says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Remember, vanity there means fleeting or ephemeral. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So the generations pass through. It's like, like a, a, a shadow or, or the water flowing by in a river, and it's, it goes and it's gone. <coughs> Ecclesiastes also says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? In early Christianity, the Desert Fathers had a discipline of meditating on this. They meditated on this change that happens, it's this fundamental mutability, and and basically that's expressed with death. And so they would meditate on that. And artists often placed skulls in the things they painted. It's funny you look back at some of these artworks, and there's there's a, one of them is famous. Uh, it's Jerome. It's, he's at a table. The the uh, church father Jerome. He's at a table translating the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. He's the one that, that basically wrote the uh, or did the translation of the of the um, uh, the uh, Catholic um, uh, the first Catholic Bible. And if you look at that painting and at the table, there's all the books and the manuscripts, and he's writing. And at one end is a skull. And I remember seeing that. That always just fascinates me when I see skulls. I, I've been that way since I was a kid. And and there it is, death. It remi- and, and apparently the story is that Jerome always put the skulls where he worked because it reminded him that he's mortal and mutable. kind of humbled him and also realized he didn't have a lot of time. So he meditated on that. We don't meditate on those things today very much. But no matter who we are or what we do, death comes for us. And there's this well-known prayer in the English primer, an old English primer, that said says and I think probably you've all heard it now I lay me down to sleep I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die before I wake I pray the Lord my soul to take can you imagine being a child who prayed that every night you'd be very aware that death is close you would be meditating in a sense on the fact that you're mortal you're mutable one of the things that comes from meditating on death is knowing that we change God does not change but we do and from this comes a question, does God care? We might begin to think that God stoically watches us, immune to our pain and suffering, like the Statue of Liberty staring out over the ships passing by on their way to the ports in New York and New Jersey, or staring down at all the tourists who come and stand on, on the island there. The words written at the base are very beautiful. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And there she stands, rock solid, not knowing the plight of every person who is below her. And that is how we might think of God. We might find ourselves, you might find yourself thinking This way, when your body breaks down with a serious disease or you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, what are you doing for me, O God? And every day, my body aches, my head throbs, my joints are stiff, my breathing is labored, and I have trouble getting up to go to the bathroom. My heart burns in my chest with sorrow. My mind grows dull, and I know it. Where is your goodness, O God? Do you just stay high above us, unchanging, eternal, like the Statue of Liberty?" Well, the temptation for us Christians is to satisfy ourselves with the belief that the incarnation is about God entering into humanity in order to experience what we experience. The Word became flesh to experience what we experience, to feel what we feel, to know what it's like to be us, and express compassion for us. That's the temptation for us to think that way about the incarnation. The popular belief today is that God suffers with us and therefore some kind of change happens with God. He becomes empathetic. You can't be empathetic with someone until you walk in their shoes. And so God had to come walk in our shoes to know what it's like to be here. And somehow we feel satisfied with that. Now, it's certainly true that in Christ, God experiences the real, full reality of our mortal life. He truly did experience all of that. Christ became man and fully took on what it means to be human in this fallen world. He took up our full humanity with its beauty and grandeur, and there's plenty of beauty and grandeur in our humanity, but it's also fallen and vulnerable and, and is tempted He assumed our humanity with its real questions and loneliness loneliness and its physical weakness, exhaustion and exposure. Isaiah uh, says it this way he was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief and he was. Let's think of Lazarus and how Jesus cried. He wept when he went to Lazarus' tomb. Our reading from Hebrews says he became like us in every respect. And I, I think it's unfortunate that in some versions of of Christian theology about the Incarnation. It's more like he took on this sort of ideal form of humanity, or maybe humanity before the fall, you know, like Adam's original humanity. And that's really not what Scripture teaches. He became like us in every respect in living in this fallen world. And Jesus, of course, how can we miss the fact that he's dealing with all the realities of living in a sinful world, of being a human in this sinful world? You can read about it in the Gospels. He's dealing with all of that. But God's purpose was not to experience what we experience and feel what we feel so we can have the satisfaction that God knows what it's like. How does that really help us? Just because someone knows what it's like, okay, I have someone who can empathize with me, who's compassionate, but okay, it's still a mess. The incarnation is God extending his goodness to us in our sinfulness. God shared his goodness with us before our fall into sin when he created us. And God shares his goodness with us after we sinned by sending his son to become man. So his goodness is constant. God does not change. His goodness is constant. It's not God who changed. We're the ones who changed from being sinless creatures to being sinful creatures. God's extension of goodness to us is always the same. What's different is its effect on us. So in the biblical story of Adam and Eve, man walked with God in peace and love before the fall into sin. After man's fall into sin, the effect of God's goodness was to forgive us our sin and to redeem our broken life. So God's goodness is the extension of his blessing to us, but the blessing works differently before and after the fall of mankind into sin, not because God's changed or his goodness has changed, but because we have. This means that God is constant in his goodness to you, even in your suffering. Jesus Christ is acquainted with your grief and pain. This Christmas, in the midst of our festive good cheer and celebration, may we remember that many are experiencing great hardship. We hear the reports of what's, come, what's happening to people in Ukraine and on the border of the United States and other such places, but not much comes through the mainstream media about Christians who are suffering. And it's easy to set this aside during Christmas, not to have to think about it for a week or two. But we can't because these are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing the harshness of this world. And I'll give you a few details of their suffering and loss Open Doors USA keeps track of the attacks on Christians around the world, so that's a source that I used. Now, we know something of the plight of the people in North Korea, and as bad as it is for everyone in that country, except always the leaders, right? They're the ones who get the good food and the warm clothes and beautiful places to live. But for everyone else, it's pretty dire in North Korea. It's worse for Christians. Christians are considered hostile elements to be eradicated, like cockroaches that you want to step on or trap and throw away. In Afghanistan, Christianity is not permitted to exist, so they know there are Christians there, but it's illegal to be a Christian in Afghanistan, so those Christians there meet in secret and are afraid of arrest. Christians in Pakistan live with constant fear that they will be accused of blasphemy and the threat of mob attacks. In Eritrea, Christians are imprisoned and dying in shipping containers. And we had some uh, – the OPC started a hospital there back in the 1940s, and we've had sort of this in-and-out relationship with Eritrea, depending on what the government is. But there was a point where some of the Christians and churches that we helped start um, were rounded up and put in shipping containers. I don't know when that was, 10, 20 years ago. So that happens over there. Violence against Christians is up in India not necessarily in every province in India, but in many places it's up, the violence against Christians. In Venezuela, a group of Christian men in uh, Libertador at the House of Restoration, it's a rehab center for drug addicts. It's a Christian rehab center. And there were men there who had become Christians who were recovering from drug, drug addictions, and they were attacked by a group that in Venezuela is called a Collective Los Colectivos. It's made up of members from different groups working closely with the regime, with the government. And Venezuela has been called a narco state. In other words, it's, it's a state heavily involved in the growth and distribution of drugs. These collectives, and probably the government, are violently opposed to the drug re- re- rehabilitation work of the church. It's kind of obvious, right? That interferes with business. <laughs> You're trying to get people off drugs that's what we want them to be on, so they'll buy more. So um, these groups are strongly against that. The Christian men who were attacked had crosses cut into their arms and were forced to eat pages of the Bibles. So that's what's going on around the world, just a few samples. Now I'm not trying, I truly hope I'm not dampening your Christmas. Christmas does take place, however, in this real world. We can't pretend like our society, that we can just sort of step out of life for a moment and live in this fantasy world. No, Christmas takes place in this real world. The word became flesh. But the reason you can still rejoice and give thanks and celebrate the birth of Christ is not because he came to experience what it's like to live in this world. He did uh, He did not come merely to feel it, and know what it's like. The reason we rejoice and give thanks, And there are many Christians among those groups I just described who are being attacked, imprisoned, and all of that, who are rejoicing and giving thanks under these horrible circumstances. But the reason we give thanks and rejoice is because Jesus was born to put an end to the sin and evil in this world. Jesus became man in order to overcome our sin and suffering and make us new. So God does not change. We do. What God does is share his goodness with us in order to free us from the suffering and pain caused by sin and evil. And that goodness is Jesus Christ. Hebrews, our reading from Hebrews 2 captures it so very well, to deliver us from captivity to the devil. So may your faith be firmly set on the word who became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Let us pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us, and because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Please stand, let us confess our faith on this day of celebrating Christ's birth. who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we prepare to come to the Lord's table is number 207, Good Christian Men Rejoice. Let's pray together in the prayer and bulletin. Stir
1: us up to offer
0: you, O Lord, ourselves, body and soul, as well as our possessions, and all we love and all we honor,
2: and all we plan and all we do, to offer our labors, pleasures, our sorrows to you, to work through them for your kingdom,
0: to live as those who are not our own, but Body, yours from our earth, yours, yours now, now, and yours and forever and ever. In, In Christ we pray. pray. Amen. Listen to this promise from Scripture. It's always uh, regularly the service of the, the Lord's Supper begins with the promise of Christ. You were ransomed, uh, the promise of the gospel. You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and spot. There's the promise. And then the institution of the supper, we do this by Christ's command, where he says, the Lord." The scripture says, the Lord Jesus found in the night uh, he was arrested, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, there's a command, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the Lord's table. He invites us to feast with him. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life and to live in love and concern for each other with a Christian love and a Christian compassion. This meal is for the church. It's for Christ's people come together. Not necessarily members of this church. It could be from other churches who have joined us. But it's for those who belong to the Christian church. And that is um, those who have been baptized. It's, it's visibly recognized that you belong to a Christian church. When you've been baptized, you publicly professed your faith in Jesus Christ with the church. And your communicant members or uh, belong to a Christian church are welcome to come to this table and stand with Christ's people and receive the gifts that he shares. As you accept this gracious invitation, you confirm that you are trusting Jesus Christ alone as your Savior from sin, endeavoring with all your heart to obey him, and that you are seeking to live with love and concern for your fellow Christians, with whom you'll be eating and drinking. Coming to the Lord's table, we cannot harbor grudges or unforgiveness towards each other. To do so, encourage the displeasure of the Lord. Coming, you affirm your love for one another in Christ. Now, did you hear anything in that that said, if you're a sinner, you can't come? No, it's not there. It says, though, if we're sinners, Christians who still struggle with sin and deal with it, we need to be active about that. We need to follow Christ's uh, commands and ask for forgiveness, seek reconciliation, repent, and all of that, which is an ongoing work for us, an ongoing work that's inspired by the Holy Spirit within us. We're to continue to do that, but we can come to the Lord's table... However, if we're holding grudges against someone or or something that we have not settled and um, and we're intentionally holding on to that, then it's it's best to get that resolved before you come and partake of the Lord's Supper. The classic text that's used to defend that um, is about in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if you have anything against your brother, leave your gift and go reconcile with him before you bring your gift to the altar, is what the translation says. So we need to remember the importance of resolving the sin in our relationships, in our lives, and not just let it sit there and pretend that God's happy with it and everything's fine because we come to this table. It needs to be worked through and and realize that doesn't happen just in a moment. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes we can't resolve it with the person. They're no longer in our lives. Then we have to ask God to forgive, set things right, and, and trust him with it. As we come to the Lord's table, let us remember that we are joining to give thanks to God for his salvation and life for us in Jesus Christ. And so let us join together. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. His right to give thanks and praise. All glory be to you, almighty God, for you have created us, you created all things, and you alone are worthy of our praise and blessing because you alone are God. You have waited for, we have waited for your promised Savior, and you have not disappointed us. You have sent your beloved Son, who was born in lowliness, tiny, and naked, but honored as the King who would give himself for our salvation. And he passed through every stage of our existence in order to heal our lives in full. And on to the cross, where he died for our sins and was raised for our justification. Ascending in glory, he brought all those who were joined with him by your Spirit and in faith, into your divine presence where we are received as your beloved children. And so even now, we stand before you, even though we can't see it visibly, we stand before you in your divine presence with all that host of heaven, and we rejoice and say with them, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And we give thanks for the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we sing out with the heavenly host, holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Along with Jesus' most precious offering of himself, we pray that these gifts of the bread and the cup would be set apart from their common use for your holy use. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may feed upon our Savior Jesus Christ in faith. And again, be set apart as your holy people. To Jesus Christ, with you and the Father and the Holy Spirit, we make our great thanksgiving, submitting ourselves completely to your holy will and your purpose for us all the days of our life. This we pray together, saying, Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. He as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. Take and eat this bread, and drink this cup, and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray.
1: O God, our Father,
0: whose word has come among us in the holy child of Bethlehem, may the light of faith illumine our hearts and shine in our words and deeds. Through him who is Christ the Lord. Amen. Our final hymns, number 219, all praise to Thee, eternal Lord. gathered into all things earthly and heavenly fill you with peace and goodwill and unite you with God and the blessing of God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever amen
1: Merry Christmas. Um, just a few brief announcements. Um, just uh, maybe a clarification is that uh, normally the uh, fellowship meal would be the first Sunday of the of the uh, month, and that would be next week. But we are postponing that a week because of the holiday. So we will be having our fellowship meal on January 8th. Um, next week we will be having a Guest, huh? A licentiate, which means that this is a person who is licensed by our presbytery to preach. However, they cannot um, uh, perform the Lord's supper. So, we will have a pastor come in and and uh, provide the sermon, but we will not be having the Lord's supper. Uh, And what's the gentleman's name? J. C. Davidson. Jason Davidson. J. 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 C. Davidson.
0: And just to explain that a little bit more, it's not like we have these odd little characters that we've created. He's he's been through seminary and he's kind of he hasn't had a call to a church yet, so he's licensed but not ordained. You have to be ordained to serve the sacraments,
1: and in order to be ordained, you have to have a call to a church. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. um, I think that's it. By way of announcements, one um, last point is normally. Uh, today we would be um, giving Jeff a gift from the congregation, um, and uh, just I, I know you uh, who have been on the email chain and, and so forth realize that this was a bit of a uh, of a scamper to try to pull this together, and we just didn't quite make it. Just just didn't quite make it in terms of formalizing uh, the gift that we have for uh, Pastor Wilson. However. Uh, it occurred to me as as we've been, as I was was thinking through this, is that that really is, I I think, kind of a secondary uh, thing. It's more that Jeff knows, I'm talking about you like you aren't here, Um, Jeff knows that how much he is loved and appreciated by the congregation, his diligence and work uh, every Lord's Day and throughout the week in terms of uh, caring for us spiritually. So, while I don't have the little thing to put in his hand, uh, I do want to express, on behalf of the congregation, gratitude uh, uh, from the congregation with regards to uh, your work as our um, as our pastor here. So, yeah.
0: thank you. And I, I usually use this opportunity to say a few words. And um, yeah, it's. It, I know it got a little dicey this last year a little like what's going to happen and we still don't know you know everything that's going to happen, how it's all everything's going to play out but i think i feel like things have settled a lot and um we're feeling good and, and we know that um that we can still go forward and um i think that's been because god has worked with all of us and that's a good thing you know there are friends here and i do sometimes go to other churches and yeah you know, i feel I've been preaching here long enough that I don't have that kind of nervousness that I had when I first started or when I go to a new church and preach, um, you know, because you just don't know what you're dealing with. I use that example of Gregory of Nazianzus, church father who started the... Uh, he, was, he was called to Constantinople by the emperor there in the 4th century. And Arianism was exploding... In the empire, so the king, the the emperor, happened to be against Arianism. He's a Christian against Arianism, so he called in Gregory. He was a great theologian to help combat it. So Gregory starts a church, um, Church of the Resurrection. I've used this example, and basically, he's he's there preaching every Sunday. And the Arians would come into the back and literally throw rocks at him while he's preaching. You don't know what you're going to be dealing with in some <laughs> congregations. So I, I feel very comfortable here, um, which I hope doesn't ever make me soften the word of God. But, um, you know, I, I do feel like it's, it's very uh, close, the friendships and relationships here. So
1: that's, that's continuing. Yeah. Um, one last point is that uh, there's point here, um, and uh, if you would like to take one or two or whatever with you uh, either for yourself or to give to someone else, they don't have to know where it came from. Um, they're in very they're in very good shape uh, and uh, would would we need to get rid of them. Uh, so there's seven of them there, so just feel free to take one or two or whatever. Um, three, uh, so that um, we can, uh, they they don't go to, they don't get wasted. They don't get thrown out, so. The row baptists are wondering if Jeffrey could watch them before
0: they go to their various places, you know, just in case. I just
1: heard this morning
0: that these are miracles. Okay. Now, this does not come from the Reformed tradition, but they're from Mexico, right? The story is this poor little boy on Christmas, you know, he wanted to give something to the Christ child, so... He picked up some leaves and some plants and all that and came to, I guess, the church, Nativity, whatever, and often they were changed into this. They became the bright red poinsettia. So these are little miracles. There <laughs> you go.
1: And you need that miracle in your house. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Well, if there's nothing else, we'll go ahead and dismiss. There's no CE today. Have a very blessed Christmas.